Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation, where it's my pleasure and privilege to have Mr. Chris Whalen, who's the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors and a new author. So we want to talk about your book, Ford Men. Thanks for making the time. This is my pleasure. Super, super cool to have a an analyst, uh, an analyst I've respected over the years, and really a historian of markets to take a crack at a big part of American history. So uh, I'm excited to hear people's you know, feedback on your book, but why did, like, why did you pick Ford of all the things? Because you, obviously you could have picked anything. Well, this is my first book. Yeah. I worked on it 12 years ago, and I didn't have a happy ending. <laughs> uh, I had worked at Bear Stearns for Alan Schwartz, and I had gotten to meet uh, Jacques Nasser during that time, and we had done a lot of work on the auto sector. We had a lot of great analysts at Bear, Gargik Apkarian, for one, who had worked in the consulting space, and he spread all their numbers. And, and at the time, they were trying to sell autos on capital light. Okay. In other words, somehow we're going to get rid of the capital-intensive part of the business, like what David Einhorn was yeah, just going the on swirl, about. I think you That's it. right. <laughs> Complete nonsense. So, um, you know, I, I was a stringer for the Washington Times, and I had done a lot of articles on the Explorer and the rollover problem with the Firestone tires. I'd done interviews. I got to know all the trial lawyers who were leading that effort, Ted Turner, who figures very prominently in the book in, in the back. You open the book with a great Henry Ford quote, which we'll show here. You can't build a reputation on what you're going to do. Right. Now, that's something that, you know, you're building your LLC now. I've had my company now for nine years. I mean, that's a, that's a great quote for a capitalist. It's a, it is. Did, did you use it because it's a great quote, or were you trying to you know, kind of set it up for something else? Well, it, it, the quote is a set up in a way because it, it speaks to the legend of Henry Ford, right. the larger-than-life image and icon-like nature that he has. What I would have thought of him right. before I read this. But it's also <laughs> an ironic quote because, and you see this throughout the book, as I pay homage to all of these biographers and, and chroniclers. You know, John Kenneth Galbraith, for example, wrote extensively on Ford. And what you find is that the legend is different from the reality. And the whole point of Ford Men is to tell the story, recall the story of all of the other people right. who made this possible. Because, yes, Ford had a vision. He had a reputation, both good and bad, for being somebody who knew about cars. But I would argue that his son, Etzel, who's the, the prince of the Ford story, really, knew more about the ma modern manufacture of cars than Ford did. Hmm. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith described Ford as an appalling mechanic, and the reason being is that he was so crude. He, he had envisioned it in his shed and built a gasoline engine with hand tools, okay? Yeah. So he did it. But to carry it forward into the modern consumer market and be able to mass produce these things, mm -hmm. you needed other skills. And people like Charles Sorensen, the Danish engineer who ran Ford for 40 years, he invented the assembly line. Mm -hmm. Not Henry Ford. Well, oh, there's so many great details on that. Right. Gal Galbraith, I didn't realize, and this is again oh, yes. drawing he, on. He like, loved Ford. But, he, <laughs> but only Chris Whalen could find this because you're, you know, economic history students, everyone knows who Galbraith is. Yes. But who knew that he was so critical? I mean, this, this one line well, you that's have. That's why you always read the book from the back, the index forward. <laughs> Galbraith, you said, sharply attacked the by then crystallized legend. Yes. Yes. But the thing of it is, is that like Stephen Jobs, Henry Ford was a brilliant, complex individual, real authentic American entrepreneur, right. but who was also decidedly antisocial um, <laughs> and had some issues. He, he caused the early death of his son, Itzel, by just constantly uh, berating him and s subjecting him to a lot of unnecessary stress. 
But it's a fabulous story, and, it, and it's an important story for Americans who want to understand business because it describes both the skills and the, the tactical skills in terms of maneuvering the business, the toughness of all of the Fords, I think, the, the courage they have to have stayed in this game as long as they have. Kind of flipping this to current markets and where this company and the auto industry and really the kind of, you can call them the Trump sectors if you want, but the industrial economy is. Where do you think these kind of, these relics of American history, if you will, or these potential shining lights, I guess, up Mm -hmm. on the hill that could come back, where do you think this story fits in that regard? Do you think that that's just sensationalism, politics, that making America great again brings back all these companies? These companies function in a global marketplace where you have a lot of price competition. All of the automakers basically make three cars, entry-level, mid-size, luxury, right? The low end doesn't make money. The mid-size cars sometimes will be profitable, and then the high end is where you make the money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you have a Google and a Tesla and uh, Apple and all of these non-auto companies throwing money at uh, you know this whole new transportation paradigm, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of profitability, mm-hmm. that puts stress on what's already a tough business, right. where many of these global automakers don't really cover their cost of capital, mm-hmm. similar to big banks. Yep. It's remarkably similar, which is overcapacity and overcompetition makes pricing really irrational. So in Ford's case, they're throwing a ton of money at Lincoln and high end, yeah. high end. Do you think that that's like, is this... Is this where this industry is going, or is it just where everybody's now competing? You have to have a credible high end. See, Ford for the Everything's first high end now. Every single brand has a high end. Yes, but for the first seventy-five years of the company's existence, they didn't have a mid and a high end offering. Really, okay. They had Lincoln, but Lincoln was minuscule. Mm-hmm. I mean, they compared Ford to Chevrolet mm-hmm. for the first seventy-five years of the company's existence. In the 70s and the 80s, they start to either acquire other brands or grow Lincoln, grow Mercury into something more substantial because there was nothing for an executive as a move-up car to go into in the Ford inventory. You went to a Chevy Mm -hmm. or a Cadillac. Now now all executives, if you want premium on Uber, you're going to get a Lincoln MKZ or something like that. Right, but you know, Ford and and Mullally, I think, did an awesome job, and the whole Ford team. I mean, Mark Fields was part of the the turnaround very much, and they have made them competitive. I would argue Ford is the most competitive of the U.S. automakers on quality, on design, and things of that nature, but it's still extremely difficult. And, you know, the thing Donald Trump does not seem to understand, I I know he does at some level, is that the auto business has to go where it goes. I mean, they go to the least cost and also the most productive employees. A combination of the two is what determines it. And you can make a lot of parts in the United States, but I think... What's wrong with making them in Mexico? Yeah, no, it's a discussion I had last night with Steve Roach at Yale. Uh, As you know, Steve Roach is uh, equally uh, talented on the historical contextualization front. Oh, yeah, good friend. Or as anybody, I mean, for that matter. Very smart guy. And he made the same point that you made, which is if if the path forward is protectionism and tariffs, it's not going to work. You have to have some free market path. Uh, Do you agree with that, in in particular with some Mm. of these Rust Belt or industrial production-oriented old economy yes. sectors? Well, look, we right now have a strong dollar policy. All, all the capital in the world is coming into this black <laughs> hole created by the Fed. So I think part of it is, do we want to discipline our manufacturers to be competitive when they have a strong currency? Mm-hmm. And you know who believes that? The Germans. Mm-hmm. The Germans have always said, no, we're going to make our, 
our industries more competitive than everybody else by forcing them to be competitive mm -hmm. with a strong currency. That's why they love the euro. It's like a discounted Deutschmark. Yeah, but you also pay your people in a strong currency, right. so their purchasing power goes up. So you know, if you want right. your manufacturing base to be in your... So I, we want fairness. Wilbur Ross is right when he talks about Chinese dumping in Mexico. Yep. He's absolutely right. We've got to fix that, and I think that's the promise of Trump, is to get things like that that were not right sorted out. But basically, we don't have any issues with the Mexicans. No. The Mex Look, the border of the United the States Canadians. is Guatemala, <laughs> okay? If you really understand security issues right now, we should be working with the Mexicans very closely. And thank God we have this country called Mexico, which is essentially a buffer for us mm -hmm. between, you know, where is our closest neighbor and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's not useful for a government in but Washington. But do you think it's just... Um, Kind of classic Trump uh, populist storytelling, or there's Partly. actual policy that Wilbur Ross would believe in well, he, that is absolutely protectionist and terror laden. I don't think Wilbur Ross would go down that road. I think he wants fairness. He wants to be able to tell the constituents of Donald Trump that they have done what they promised to do, which mm -hmm. is to make it fair to American workers. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, the answer is to make American workers more productive so they can do things where they get paid more money. Right. I don't want them competing with Mexico. Mm -hmm. I remember my friend uh, Fritz Hollings, a senator from South Carolina, used to say, Chris, are you ready to live on two bowls of rice a day? He goes, I'm not ready to live on two bowls of rice a day, <laughs> with that beautiful South Carolina accent. And, uh, you know, that's the issue. We want yeah. our workers to make more money. And the good news is the Brazilians and the Chinese and the Indians their rate of inflation and their increase in wages is far outstripping ours. They're yeah. catching us right now. Mm -hmm. If you could argue in the case of Brazil, for example, they've almost caught us. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and, and I think even in your most recent tweets, you, you've, been, you've continued to highlight the deflationary forces that are... Oh, yeah. Um, that piece in the journal last Friday with the chart, I thought, there you go. But even, I mean, you can, every day... Like the CRB index, 19 commodities hit a new year-to-date low here. Not, year, not that year-to-date matters, but if you take that epic inflation expectations that Bernanke created with the all-time low in the dollar mm -hmm. coming into 2012. Interestingly, the deflator in GDP this morning was the highest number since Q1 of 2012. So, so on a right. trailing basis, if you look backwards, you got some inflation. But if you look at any forward-looking inflation expectations chart, right. CRB index being a good one, break-even, swaps, you, you watch them, obviously, uh, you're deflating again. Yeah, and it's because the system needs to deflate. The great fallacy of the central banker is that you can somehow uh, prevent the system from readjusting after a period of excess. Mm -hmm. And the answer is no, you can't. It's just like restructuring the automakers. You have to get on with it and deal with it. And that's why it's so important that the U.S. has the bankruptcy code and the ability to, to sort things out mm -hmm. in a timely fashion with finality. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. You don't have that in Europe. The reason the European banks are still zombies is because they have not dealt with credit you, issues. You, you, you expedite the process. You, yes. put, the, you put the asset That's in new right. hands, and then they expedite the recovery. Yeah, but the politics of that are very difficult in the U.K. because yeah. the politicians control receivership. Yep. There's no separation between the political world and the judicial world. But you're saying that the monetary policy should act more in that way as yeah. opposed to trying to suspend... You know, rarefied well, air. No, it's that. It's not even possible. This whole idiocy of macroprudential that says that the economists can somehow guide things from the top <laughs> is insane. It is. It's absolutely nutty. And what they do is they introduce more volatility into the system by using asset prices to somehow do, they're not sure, to do something with consumer income in desperation. 
the Fed goes out and buys trillions of dollars worth of government debt and mortgage securities to try and indirectly affect the income. It didn't work. Yeah. It's very clear it didn't work. Well, it's an interesting, like a, even in New Haven last night, and I wouldn't say that college campuses right now are exactly uh, the last bastion of conservatism. I mean, we yeah. have at Berkeley, they're bashing down the windows. You know, you That's have Berkeley. But, uh, but I didn't expect people to actually blame, which they did. You had full Q&A, student audience, blame monetary policy, blame inequality as the outcrop or the causal factor being monetary policy. Mm. The policy to inflate asset prices, thereby inflating the cost of living of the core components by which people live. Yeah. One of the biggest ones being rent. Um, Do you agree with that? Well, look at home prices. What's common between stocks and home prices today is that they're both squeezed on the supply end. Yeah. The, the, the whole curve of stocks risk. Stocks on the supply end, that's right. No, it's the same. And the Wilshire 5000 doesn't have 5,000 stocks. Right, and all, all of the attentions on the debt market. We're going to have another peak, all-time record in high-grade debt issuance. And two-thirds of it's for refining existing debt that was used to buy back stock. <laughs> so all the Fed has done is skewed the risk curve severely. And there's nothing going on in equities. Why mm-hmm. should there be? They're all getting done privately. Hmm. You could do it with debt if you wanted to, but you're not. There's so much extra cash in the private equity world that they don't even need to go public. Mm. So I mean, th- you- think about energy. All the energy companies at the banks that I worked with at Kroll uh, basically told the companies, hey, we need to see more equity from you given the price decrease because of what it had done to reserves, right? Mm-hmm. And the private equity guys stepped up. Yeah, they put the money in. Well, there's another. There's a good and example. Thwarted the Saudis totally, by the way. Like you don't even have. Like you can go as deep into credit as any analyst probably on Wall Street uh, to your credit, uh, in credit. But the reality is that a lot of people that are watching this, it's it's too far down in the weeds. Yeah, like if you of take course. it back up to energy, I think people get energy now. Sure. Because people felt a lot of pain in energy. Um, but think about the price decline in energy and what that implied for companies that were in that absolutely. industry. Yeah. So if you're a banker for that company. You're like, okay, show me the money, and the money showed up. Yeah. And well, it got I mean, more efficient. And, you know, I think in, in some of the cases, these are going to be home runs for the private equity firm. So if you go, like, I mean, you're repapering. Wall Street's made a lot of money repapering over energy. Yeah, but you don't make as much on a debt issue as you do on an equity issue. It's a thinner business. So how does that end if it, it let's, let's just say for argument's sake that oil doesn't go to 60 and 70, trade sideways or even down. Do you think that there's a big market risk in that? Debt component of high yield? There is some because... Energy debt component. Yeah, well, not just energy, but in other sectors, because (laughs) the Fed was letting non-investment-grade companies borrow at investment-grade spreads. They compressed spreads. So a lot of companies that should have been paying sevens and eights and nines for their debt were down in the fives. Uh And the execution was amazing. For big assets like aircraft finance, for example, today, the competition is intense. I mean, the private equity world has literally pushed the Japanese and Chinese banks out of the way Mm -hmm. in that market. And you've got insurance companies playing, big pension funds. These are big assets. Well, I mean, we showed this in our current macro themes presentation. High-yield OAS is lower than where it was before we had the deflationary blow-up in the energy markets. And, you know, I think 2014 was the low, and then risk happens all at once. Now we're lower than that low. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Fed's tightening. How does this play out? I don't know. High-yield spreads, that's the topic. You know, the I mean, Fed executes policy through the bond market. You would think that they would pay attention <laughs> to what's going on in the bond market. Obviously, they should be selling uh, at least their mortgage paper. 
you know, right now, remember. So you agree with the, the can, yes. there's a, okay, do you think they should pick up the pace Because on we're down three, four hundred billion in terms of new originations this year because of interest rates. When the 10-year went over 2.6, refinancing activity stopped. Mm -hmm. People were delivering into a Fannie Mae three and a half. We had moved a full point in Fannie Mae Good coupon. Point. So that's affected the industry dramatically. Now it may change since the 10-year is now down. Where is it today, 10? 233. Yeah, so right. it, it's fluttering around. But if it doesn't, it doesn't maintain that rally, I've been talking about going to two. Mm -hmm. um, then you know, it won't help the mortgage industry much. That's the thing. Wall Street banks, if you looked at earnings in the first quarter, there was no real oomph from Resi. Yeah. Resi's down. Well, here's a, and there's just to flip this to, to banks, uh, bank earnings. Our call this year has been, quite simply, both on U.S. growth and on bank earnings, for example, that they're comparing against some version of hell in Q2 of last year. I mean, literally, you had, on a reported basis, which you know they don't report gap, but even on you know, some made-up sense of numbers, the aggregate uh, financials earnings were down 15% year-over-year in Q2. Right. Q1, Q2 is down like 7 to 14%. So it's easy to show growth when you're comparing against a yes. negative comparison. Yeah, first quarter was very bad in, in the market for asset-backed securities, commercial, real estate, yep. stopped. Yep. Um, the other classes like autos and credit cards were okay, but that's a big part of Wall Street you know, yeah, securities absolutely. revenue. So, yeah, you're right. So the, my question the, is, the like, comparison is not... What happens not once we, you know, it's, it's, from my perspective, it's been easy money owning um, some acceleration in profits, acceleration in growth. But again, it's against easy comparisons. What happens once we get past that? You know, by the time we're in Q4, Q1, mm -hmm. uh, what do you think this looks like? Is it just right back into the soup or... No, I think what's going to happen is we're going to see the economy fade again in the second half, the way we've seen over the past few okay. years. And that's going to, I think, ripple down into corporate earnings, at least amongst the banks and the cyclicals, for the simple reason that you just don't have a lot of demand. Mm -hmm. This is the problem that Janet Yellen and the members of the Federal Open Market Committee have. You don't have enormous demand. So as I like to say, if you're running down the runway and you haven't gotten to 175 knots, you can't auto-rotate and get off the ground. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem is you don't have enough pull in terms of demand for credit. I mean, you, you have investment demand, but is the economy as a whole really pulling that hard? No. Mm -hmm. We're barely growing at 1.5%. Mm -hmm. And my fear is you're going to see volatility in that GDP series again, much the way you saw it in the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the, the quarter when we hit 5% run rate, I think the two quarters after, we were negative. Well, so. the, I mean, the, the main problem that is the calculus. I mean, even today, right. people are just, if you want to find a negative data point using whatever duration you want to pick, you're going to find it. Yes. Like the quarter-over-quarter quarter annualized GDP number, what the hell does that mean, Chris? Like at the end of the day, yeah, we model it year-over-year year because that's the only reasonable way to look at a trend right. in a cycle. Um, but I th I, I've never seen more confu I, first, I've never seen more people do macro or purport to uh, <laughs> and more yeah. people getting it wrong. Right. I mean, if you look at how, how wrong consensus has been on almost every macro topic from the British pound mm -hmm. to shorting the Russell before Easter to the two and a half year high in net short Look, I called Brexit. People thought I was nuts. Yeah, and then I called the Donald. Uh, we were up at Lean's Lodge. You called the Donald? Maine. Oh, yeah. In March, right? Really? And we were... Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, see, my wife will tell you. So then we're at Lean's Lodge in June for the early fishing trip and we do a straw poll and it ended up voting for Trump. But I'm looking at everybody at the table who are all fund managers from New York, right? The meanies all voted for Trump. We let the kitchen staff participate, obviously. And um, 
I, I looked at everybody, I said, you know, he's riding the same way if it's Brexit. You gotta you gotta pay attention to this. <laughs> yeah. So you so, know So how about Trump on uh, last topic, tax reform? Yes. You don't have opinions on taxes, do you? Well, <laughs> look, I used to work for a guy named Jack Kemp, and in those days, people worried about deficits. You worked for Kemp? I did. You know, J.T. Taylor, our chief political strategist, he worked for Kemp. Oh, yeah. You know, him and Paul Ryan. Uh, yes. No, I worked for the House Republican Conference. I okay. worked for Terry Hauser and uh, Carl Flock, who's no longer with us, great editors, who uh, Carl was an OSS officer, actually, in World War II. Really? Terry's very heavily involved in Republican politics down in Washington. Texan. But uh, yeah, no, we, um, when, when you see the tax proposal, you know, as our friend Isaac Boltanski at Compass Point said, we were expecting the 10,000 or 100,000 foot view, and we got the view from the space station. <laughs> so I don't think there's much chance that what he's put out there is going to get enacted, because even though Republicans want growth, they are not going to blow out the budget numbers. The conservatives in the House are just not going to do that. That's the third rail. You can't yeah, go there. Yeah, I think so. The but, ten-year, um, two trillion. That's right. That's. The, but I, I've just uh, written a piece that's going to, I think, uh, be in the national interest in the next day or so, talking about the issue which we're not discussing, which is offshore. Mm. I mean, the use of offshore financial transactions by U.S. corporates over the past thirty years has probably deprived the U.S. Treasury of $10 trillion worth of... Trillion? Ten trillion? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you figure during that 30 years or so, we did $100 trillion in ABS deals, I think conservatively you could say that $10 trillion of those were for tax purposes. So and the Goldman guys, Mnuchin and, and uh, yes. Cohen, are going to go right after that one, aren't they? No, Goldman <laughs> is actually one of the best firms in that business. The whole special limited exactly. partnership structuring... They're the biggest. Well, yeah. They, they Biggest issue of ABS knowledge of the tax code, but look at the the case that was turned down by the Supreme Court in January involving Dow Chemical. It was a tax case where the IRS disallowed a number of offshore transactions. What year was this? It was just this January. Really? Yeah, very important case, and the lawyers involved worked for the biggest tax firm in the world, and they lost. When the wow. case uh, came up at the appeals court level, and Dow lost. A lot of people in the bar who focus on taxes said, oh, leave it alone. But they appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that has now made this a very significant decision because what it basically says, if you're a corporate and you've been cheating on your taxes using offshore uh, techniques, you better go cut a deal. Really? Because the IRS has a stick and they have limited resources, but they're clearly going through these transactions. Wow. If, if you look at the IRS's filing with the Supreme Court, which is online, it's, it's very, very simple what they're doing. They're wow. disallowing the sale treatment for these transactions and saying, no, no, th this wasn't a fair arm's length sale. This, this is all taxable income. It's a big deal. So does that expedite repatriation or no? It's better than repatriation. Repatriation was just this little you know, aside that they had thrown in there to hopefully uh, fund uh, you know, infrastructure. This is a lot of money. This is significant dollars that I think the Treasury over time is going to have to go for because the deficits are going to go up. Hmm. You know, you're going to see enforcement take a much more prominent role on the corporate side. Uh, and it's a shame Trump can't get out in front of this. You know, as a businessman, he's used some of these techniques. Do you think himself. he's aware of it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It would affect this, him, wouldn't it? This case, there was a case involving a firm called United Shipholding Group that had to file bankruptcy. Uh, there was a GE case. Uh, all the same issue, offshore 
transactions that reduce the taxable income of a U.S. corporate. Wow. And that's a big deal, I'm telling yeah. you. This, this is a very techie, very in-the-weeds kind of subject. It's taxes. But I, I got to tell you that if IRS goes after this stuff, they're going to get a lot of recoveries. Wow. The, I guess, since you've unearthed that, is usually unearthed the... <laughs> this, is a, this isn't a small thing. This is a big thing, $10 trillion. Um, what, what else is out there that is really concerning to you that you haven't seen a lot of people write about or talk about? The economy's in a muddle. It's in kind of stagflation. We're not growing very fast. Uh, credit costs are very low, but they're going up slowly. Mm -hmm. um, there's no particular pull through the private sector. You had a, a, an exuberance, thanks to Chair Yellen, yep. in autos, commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to work that out. I don't think it's a catastrophe because there's such demand for assets. Uh, you know, if they go down 10%, you're going to have buyers. Mm -hmm. Same thing in residential. They go down 3%, they gave you a buyer. Yeah, in residential, you haven't had any construction lending in seven years. Mm -hmm. The book for U.S. banks for construction lending is half what it was mm -hmm. in 2008. But a lot of these things, too, I mean, if you look at a, maybe we can show it here, but you show a long-term chart of CapEx for 23 months in a row. It was negative coming into Trump's yes. inauguration. 23 months, year over year in a row. It's a, forget a, a recession. I mean, that's depressionary mm -hmm. in CapEx terms. Uh, yesterday's number was up three percent year over year. Again, it's the it's the what I'm fascinated with, which is the comparison against these low expectations. You know, mm -hmm. it's the it's it's kind of these brutal low, brutally low and pervasively low expectations. So you start capex is now up three percent year over year. Mm -hmm. That's going to change. That that changed. Something changed. You know, well, uh, a lot is it, it going to change sustainably? Uh, will tax? Yeah. Do you think that the tax code or the new tax plan, whatever the plan is, I believe the plan is going to change. Uh, but do you mm -hmm. think that that would support more CapEx? Do you think we could actually go on a run on CapEx? Companies have felt that the best use of cash is to buy back stock. The other thing is, remember... Not, you know, not, not invest in their business. No. That's, that's one of the Just reasons buy why buy the stock. Are, right. And lever up to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because of the Fed. The other thing, though, is that the regulators generally, with respect to the banks, have put a lot of uh, obstacles in the way of credit creation, mm -hmm. both directly on the bank balance sheet and what they're allowed to do with counterparties. So, for example, funding non-banks. Mm -hmm. Just that slowdown in credit creation on the part of the banks, especially risky credits with any probability of default. They don't do it. Mm. Don't even talk to them. Um, that, I think, has had a large uh, role in slowing down overall growth. And it's something that the left rejects. They say, oh, no, there's plenty of lending. No, no, they're only lending to people yeah. who have pretty much pristine credit. Pristine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you look at the big banks. The big banks are out of the Ginnie Mae market now, which is where more of the low FICO low credit uh, borrowers go, they're doing Fannie and Freddie 740 FICO scores. So people who are not going to default on their loans. Why are they doing this? Because the government punished banks that got involved with defaulted loans. Mm. They don't do that anymore. So we have structurally changed our market to take less risk. Mm. And whether you look at commercial real estate or commercial and industrial loans for business, in every case, the regulators have put hard limits that are measured against tangible equity to say, no, don't do anymore. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of the debt issuance you saw from the little banks last year when I was at Kroll were because they were trying to yeah. raise capital to help them do more commercial loans because they don't want to lend on homes. Mm -hmm. Banks as a class really don't want to do risky loans on a single-family home hmm. because the creation of the CFPB and Elizabeth Warren yeah. have just made that asset class radioactive. 
They don't want to do it. Just brutal. Jamie Dimon. You know, I mean, you've talked about his shareholder letter. <laughs> he lays it out there. You know, Marianne Lake, who's you know best CFO in the business. They've been very upfront on how they view that asset class. Uh-huh. And the basic message is, if we went back to our board and said, "Hey, let's go do FHA lending," the answer would be no. No. The board just does, and the Forget reputational it. risk, all, all of it. They mm-hmm. they just don't want to do it. Yeah. So that structurally, I think, is a big issue that we have to think about Washington. I mean, what holistically do we want our marketplace to look like? Mm -hmm. We never have that conversation. The Treasury Secretary and the people in Congress and the other agencies need to sit down and say, well, if mortgage servicers can't make money, can they invest in new technology? No, No. of course not. But that's the kind of conversation that we had under Barack Obama. So hopefully that'll change. Yeah, and and now, Chris, you're on your own, and they have listening sessions. (laughs) So they can listen to Chris. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. I actually (laughs) put my name in the hat to join the Community Bank Advisory Group at the CFPB. I haven't heard from them yet. Uh, it's, it'll be, it, it would be fun if they actually listen to the guys who know, who know what's going on. So hopefully they do listen to you. Look, I ultimately have great admiration and, uh, and, uh, and willing to support the folks at the CFPB, but they have to stop pretending that they're leading the Spanish Inquisition. Okay? <laughs> They've got to learn to work with mortgage companies and realize that this is a manufacturing process involving people, yep. and people make mistakes. Yep. But as long as you take care of the borrower and you avoid abuse, which is very important, then I think you can make it work and these people can make money. We could see a couple of big mortgage companies go bankrupt this year. Uh, Uh, Walter is in terrible trouble. The stock is, you know, you can't even see it. Aquin just got another attack by Richard Cordray and the folks at the CFPB. And their idea is punishment. They don't really care about anything else. Mm -hmm. And feeding their friends in the trial bar. Yeah, lovely. Isn't that lovely? Well, uh, thank you for not only the, you know, this book, you got to get it. Um, but thank you. But your uh, just a tremendous amount of historical knowledge. I mean, I, I think the world. I the, collect old the, books. The world's got <laughs> the world's got to listen to you. So if you want if you want to listen uh, to Chris Whalen, he tweets. So you can see uh, his Twitter handles right here. And thank you again for tuning into this real conversation. Thank you for listening to this edition of Hedgeye's Real Conversations. If you enjoyed this interview, we encourage you to subscribe to Hedgeye Podcasts for automatic downloads of future interviews with top market and economic thought leaders. You can also visit Hedgeye.com for additional content. There you can learn more about our financial research firm's comprehensive market research products and complimentary videos and analysis. The proceeding has been presented for informational purposes only, and none of the information contained herein constitutes a solicitation, offer, opinion, or recommendation by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guest speakers to buy or sell any security or to provide legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice regarding the profitability or suitability of any security or investment. Opinions and analysis are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can and may go up or down based on any number of factors. Consult your financial professional before investing.